0: Jesus, the days that we have seen We have heard the chimes at midnight, master of That we have, that we have, that we have In faith, Sir John, we have Jesus, the days that we have seen
1: Hello and welcome back to Ear Read This a literature podcast where today I turn my tongue divine to a loud trumpet to talk about Henry IV Part 2 by William Shakespeare. I'm Ash, your host, and joining me throughout the podcast once again are Rob Miles and Sarah Peachy, the co-creators of The Show Must Go Online. As before, I've left a link to their production of Henry IV Part 2 in the podcast description box below. To hear more from Rob and Sarah, look out for our next episode, which will be an extended interview where I'll ask them both more about how they got started on The show Must Go Online and much more besides. If you enjoyed today's podcast and want to listen to more episodes on Shakespeare plays, well, we've now got a back catalogue packed with wax like a bee's thighs for you to fill your ears those vents of hearing with. We've done episodes on all the early comedies, as well as Romeo and Juliet, and recently we've done Richard II and Edward III, a play that in recent years has contentiously been claimed as Shakespeare's. Coming up on the podcast, we've got episodes on the remaining history plays and beyond, so if you don't want to miss out, be sure to subscribe on your chosen podcast platform. But on to today's episode, as we saw last time, part one of Henry IV had been a huge hit in Shakespeare's day, thanks in large part to the fat part of Falstaff. Leonard Diggs, shortly after Shakespeare's death, advised young playwrights looking to get bums on seats, let Falstaff come and you shall scarcely have a room. Part two is thought to have been staged in around 1598, and like part one was first performed at the Curtin Theatre in Shoreditch, where Shakespeare's company operated in the year or so before the famous Globe was built. Unlike previous histories we've talked about, part two is pretty thin on what Dr. Johnson calls the great events. Part one saw the crushing of the Percy Rebellion at the historic Battle of Shrewsbury, and the beginning of Hal, the future King Henry V, taking on more of a princely character. He was back in his father's good books, and the king himself, Henry IV, was looking promisingly sickly. Had retelling history been Shakespeare's sole ambition, we might expect this play to be instead called Henry V and open with the burial of Henry IV. But no, Shakespeare knew his audience, and they had called out for more Falstaff. What appears to happen next is that the plays slow down history to accommodate another few hours in the Fat Knight's company, before historical matters take precedence once again in Henry V. Henry IV, as a character, is therefore even more marginalised than he was in Part 1, not appearing on stage here until Act 3, and Hal, having been separated from Falstaff, has little to do other than twiddle his thumbs and wait for the crown. In the meantime, we see a lot more of Falstaff, and he is joined by his comic crew, Bardolph, Mistress Quickly, Doll Tearsheet, and the particularly popular Ancient Pistol, who will return again in Henry V and The Merry Wives of Windsor. What historical matters there are seem a little reheated. The Earl of Northumberland, having abandoned his own rebellion and thrown a sickie on the Battle of Shrewsbury, has lost a great deal of men, including the best of them, his son Hotspur. Nevertheless, he makes a limp effort to rebel once again, with much reduced numbers and predictable results. The sidelining of history has meant that Henry IV Part II has often been performed under the title Falstaff, for it is he who dominates, bickering with his ensign pistol, bad-mouthing the prince, and most memorably, recruiting loyalist soldiers with his old acquaintance, Justice Shallow. In this scene, the two old men reminisce fondly about their youths as Falstaff accepts bribes from those not wishing to be conscripted. For all this, it is with some surprise that we find Part 2 somewhat lacking in the carnival atmosphere of Part 1. Falstaff's shenanigans are tempered with sadness, age, ill-health, diminishing returns and grief. Previously, he was a life-giving force. Here, he is called a dead elm. After the antic summer of part one, part two is a play for autumn. Henry IV's ill health in the last play was countered by Falstaff's insultingly good health. He appeared immune to the effects of hard living, immune even to the effects of time. He lived out of all compass and didn't give a damn for the time of the day. In his first words in part two, Falstaff is asking for a report on the health of his urine. The doctor's enigmatic response is that the urine itself is fine, but the owner likely has more diseases than he knows the name of. Despite this play picking up where the last one left off, the Falstaff we find in part two is sicker and older. He limps with a sour toe from gout, and after ignoring repeated references to age and death, he eventually uncharacteristically acknowledges the passage of time. I am old, I am old. Come it grows late, wheel to bed. Thou'lt forget me when I'm gone. Shakespeare here elaborates on his theme of a sick kingdom and the accompanying imagery of the laws of nature gone haywire. An archbishop accuses someone of being a common dog, of disgorging thy glutton bosom of the royal richard, and now thou wouldst eat thy dead vomit up, and howlest to find it. Falstaff compares himself to a sow that has overwhelmed all her litter. And the Earl of Northumberland, in the play's opening scene, establishes the Kingdom of England as a place so deranged in its sickness that poison has become curative. In poison there is physic, and these news, having been well, that would have made me sick, being sick have in some measure made me well. When he sees a messenger approaching, he predicts bad news. This man's brow, like to a title leaf, foretells the nature of a tragic volume. Henry IV, Part II's own title leaf from 1600, tells of a rather mixed volume, the second part of Henry IV continuing to his death and the coronation of Henry V, with the humours of Sir John Falstaff and Swaggering Pistol. It's rare that the play is staged in full and independently. More often it is to a company's advantage to combine it with Part I, or both parts with Henry V. Orson Welles, taking the role of Falstaff himself, combined the two parts of Henry IV for an unsuccessful theatrical run, later reworking the material into the film Chimes at Midnight. To do so, Wells had to pare the script down to a sharp focus on the relationship between Hal and Falstaff, which he saw as a kind of love story between father figure and son. One of the great things about The Show Must Go Online is that they don't have the restraints of physical theatre or cinema, so you have the opportunity to go and watch part two in its entirety. And I highly recommend you do, so you get a feel of what a strange play this is to find among the histories. We, of course, must be careful not to project our own expectations back in time too much. We don't know exactly what imperatives were upon Shakespeare as a theatrical businessman. And some contemporary commentators make the mistake of thinking he, like Hal, had to play for time during part two in order to move on. And I've even heard people suggest he fell victim to the curse of trilogies, namely that the middle part is always a bit weak. This is wrong on several counts. He wasn't writing a trilogy for a start, and such conceptions are based on cinematic sagas where, for financial reasons, whole series are planned before a single frame is shot. Shakespeare did have source material, but he didn't have a duty to stage it in a fixed number of plays. He wrote a sequel to Henry IV because he knew he had an audience for it, not because he had to get it out of the way in order to write Henry V. In general, people often think too much in terms of story when it comes to criticising Shakespeare, the story in the case of these plays being The Ascension of Howe, They therefore accuse part two, for featuring lots of Falstaff arsing about, of neglecting story. But Shakespeare wasn't writing genre fiction, he wasn't even writing history, he was writing staged entertainment. And he was much more driven, at least at this point in his career, in making sure he stuffed each scene with interest. Furthermore, genre seems to have been a much more porous and less revered concept than it is today. And this particular type of theatrical history was barely out of its infancy. So the notion that Shakespeare was tearing down dramatic conventions is also not that accurate. If anything, he was creating them. None of which is to say, of course, that Shakespeare doesn't do many surprising things in this play, just that we must remain as diligent as we can in separating what was surprising for him to do in the 16th century and what is surprising for us to find in the 21st. If we are to conclude that the chief reason for this play's existence was the popularity of Sir John Falstaff, then how Shakespeare treats his successful comic creation is unexpected and interesting and it's something we'll be looking at very shortly. In its construction, the play has many surprises in store as well. There are moments throughout the play that are precisely timed to mirror events occurring at the same place in part one. At the end of that play, Hal stands over the corpse of Hotspur and Falstaff, not knowing that Falstaff is only playing dead. Towards the end of this play, he stands over what he takes to be his father's body and takes the crown to wear himself, not knowing that Henry IV is still breathing. The famous tavern scene, which we talked about in part one, comes... In Act two, scene four. The corresponding scene in part two sees Falstaff back in the tavern, singing of the days of King Arthur and shouting for his piss pot to be emptied. It promises to be another scene of raucous immorality, but this time there is a creeping seediness in the mix. Falstaff speculates about the extent of Dol Tearsheet's diseases and insults Hal, unaware that the Prince is listening in, disguised as a servant. This is the only scene in this play in which Hal and Falstaff meet before the Fat Knight's banishment, and it serves as a kind of justification of Hal's actions. The scene ends with Falstaff bidding farewell to Doll and Mistress Quickly, the latter of whom says, Well, fare thee well. I have known thee these 29 years come peace, Peacecod time. An unexpectedly tender moment that shows just how far we've come from the perpetual gaiety of the last play. Act 1, scene 1 of part 1, sees Henry IV, shaken and sick, receiving grim news of trouble with the Welsh, and speaking of how he envies the Earl of Northumberland, whose son Hotspur is so much more princely than his own son Hal. Act 1, scene 1 of part 2, sees Northumberland, crafty sick, receiving grim news of the Battle of Shrewsbury, mourning the loss of Hotspur, slain by Hal, and vowing to rebel once more against the king. Act 2, scene 3 of each play, features Lady Percy, In the first part, she is asking her husband, Hotspur, what it is that robs him of his golden sleep. And in part two, she is a widow, imploring her father-in-law not to rebel, saying he has now lost his greatest soldier, Hotspur, who she calls the glass wherein the noble youth did dress themselves. The mark and glass, copy and book, that fashioned others. It's not entirely clear why Shakespeare copied his own book. He was asking a lot of audiences to appreciate this mirroring or chiasmus without a copy of both plays in front of them. So did he then do it for prosperity? Unlikely, given that he didn't appear to take a great deal of care in preserving his plays until later in life. Was it for personal gratification then, or was it more prosaic than that? Having written a hit play, did he simply think it a smart idea to reuse the same formula? It's both tempting and perhaps unwise to imagine Shakespeare writing this bittersweet sequel full of characters attempting to recreate their pasts and using their nostalgia to inform his construction. Also of great significance is the increased roles for non-noble, unhistorical characters in the play. As James C. Bullman writes, It is as much the obverse of part one as its sequel. Its originality resides in the casual, digressive, almost ramshackle way in which it casts a wide net over England, gathering in social groups whose unwritten histories rival in importance even supersede the official history which concludes with Hal's accession. I began my conversation with Rob and Sarah about part two by asking them what they thought people missed out on, if they had only seen the play in abridged versions.
2: It's a good question. Um, More of a good thing is probably the shortest and easiest answer to give. Um, The one that slightly absolves me of any responsibility as well. Um, But I I think from what I remember and from what I understand is that you get to see more of the real world than ever in a Shakespeare play. You get to see more of what's going on in the lives of normal people. It becomes more pastoral and you end up uh, outside of London and the battlefield taking in new locations. Uh, I think there's a particularly fascinating scene that takes place in an orchard, which I think involves just this shadow from Merry Wives of Windsor. And so there's a lot more of a portrait of what life was like for people being affected by global politics rather than people setting global politics, mm-hmm. uh, which again, at a time like this, feels more relevant maybe to most of us because it, it's going to be a closer analogue to our, our lived experience. You've got the wonderful fact that Hal has gone back to the tavern because I think the, the main challenge that I think makes people combine or cut these plays is that him killing Hotspur feels like such a neat resolution why do you go back? Hmm. Why do you? Uh, uh, what's that word that people use? Um, I love that I said that. Like words aren't all things that people use. <laughs> M- uh, no. Default? Um, no. You know when uh, you know when people go back and like change something in in the past by by changing it in the present, they they kind of run it over. It's like retrofit, but it's not retrofit. This is what your brain's like on 16 yeah, weeks of yeah.
1: Shakespeare. If we can't if we can't remember it, I'll edit it in with a Siri voice. Exactly. Yes, do that. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Yes.
2: I'll give you full permission to <laughs> Siri that in uh, without skipping a beat. I think I think yeah, so you've got that big challenge of why why does he go back what you know why does he why is it King Henry that separates him and I think that to me again comes back to that thing that Eric Rasmussen said about addiction and bad influence and why you have to make a clean break. And that's that to me is, is why he goes back because we talked about, again, the semiotic tensions of a character. What are they moving towards and what are they moving away from? And Hal is always moving, in my view, towards growth. Mm-hmm. He wants new experiences. He wants to learn new languages, even if that's just the language of the common man, right? He wants to um, go and have a battle without knowing necessarily if he can do it. He he's in a growth mindset and he wants new experiences. You know, it's almost like he's on a gap year, if you want to put it that way. And he goes on the Rob to see what going on the Rob feels like. What he's run, that's, so that's what he's going towards, his growth and new experience and expanding his toolkit. What he doesn't like and what he moves away from is responsibility. Mm. And now that he's defeated Hotspur, expectation is suddenly... There, which was the thing that at the beginning of part one, it was like, no, I'm going to set expectations so criminally low that if I can tie my own shoelaces, people will be amazed. Yeah, And now they're like, this is the guy who killed Hotspur. We expect great things. Mm. And that forces him to run away from the responsibility again. And he relapses in a way. Retcon. Uh, Retcon. That's it. Retcon is the word. Thank you. Yes. Ah, I can't tell you the relief that's just washed over me. That was a tension I was carrying there. Um, and then you've got Hal trying on the crown for size. And I know that that's one of the bits that often people choose to keep, even in The King, which is mostly Henry V, but has a little bit of one and two. Mm. He keeps like one scene from part one and one scene from part two, I think. But that's the scene that they keep is him trying on the crown while he's ill. And then he wakes back up and he's not dead. And he's like, "Oh, I see." Yeah. <laughs> I think that that scene for me, because there's such a seeming resolution between the two in part one, the idea that it ends on a bitter note or a sour note between them, and and that they they split in a way that leaves Hal utterly alone, because he has you know he has to get rid of Falstaff. His dad's going whether he likes it or not. I talk a lot when I'm directing about tearing pain, the the sensation of tearing as being the kind of pain that feels most visceral, I guess, or feels most immediate and extreme. And I think Hal in part two goes through a lot of that tearing pain Mm. and has to sit in discomfort a lot more than in the first one. And if the plays are a mirror to each other in any way, it's Hal's comfort in one, versus his discomfort in the other. Yeah, Yeah. so I think there's a lot that people will be able to get out of it. I know when we did the Henry VI plays, we did parts one, two, and three, people were astonished, <laughs> because usually all three of those plays get chucked into a prologue to Richard III, yeah. and it gets War of the roses or whatever. And people could not believe, especially with part two, which was my personal favourite, the variety show feel of it. The idea of why are we over here doing this? Why is someone here claiming that there's been a miracle that makes them walk? And why do, and why does he then get beaten by a beetle and run away, comically, in, in the middle of a larger scene about disputations over who should be, you know, it's craziness. And, and there were witches and there were shipwrecks and pirates. And it's like, what is going on? <laughs> Uh, so I think with the lesser known ones, especially people really should give them the chance because there is a, a sensation, I think, or a or a trend in modern Shakespearean production, and which I think is heavily influenced by modern film and TV production, that story is what it's all about. That it's about plot, plot, plot. If it moves the plot forward, it stays. If it doesn't, it's a, a wasteful indulgence that's outstaying the audience's welcome. I don't think it's in any way productive to view a Shakespearean play like that, because I think all of the plays were designed to be a variety show. There wasn't the radio and Netflix and Amazon and normal TV and live theatre and sport and whatever. There was theatre and bear baiting, if you wanted entertainment, right? And so, and yeah, written poems, of course, as well. But there were far fewer forms of entertainment and so i think these plays were designed to go on for longer i personally imagine that there might have been some kind of soft interval between acts even so that people could either come in if they'd missed the start because how often does it happen that a messenger comes in and recaps what happened in the previous scene Mm. Um, that must be there because people were expected to come in midway through and go what's going on oh cool great
1: (laughs) yeah We are told what's going on at the very start of the play, and it comes with a surprise to match that at the start of part one. In the first play, we discovered that the usurping Bolingbroke had degenerated into a shaken monarch, one with care. Part two's surprise comes with a stage direction. Enter Rumour, painted full of tongues. The character of Rumour then opens the play with a speech, which in Dr Johnson's words is wholly useless, since we are told nothing which the first scene does not clearly and naturally discover. Open your ears, says Rumour, for which of you will stop the vent of hearing when loud rumour speaks? Rumour is come, it announces, to noise abroad that Harry Monmouth fell under the wrath of noble Hotspur's sword. In other words, that the events of the Battle of Shrewsbury at the end of part one were reversed. Dr Johnson, who did concede the speech was not inelegant or unpoetical, is perfectly correct in saying that this tells us nothing we don't subsequently hear, but... As Rob said, these plays often have characters re-establishing the plot, perhaps for the benefit of latecomers, but also scholars have suggested that in performance, Elizabethan actors barrelled through their lines, so a recap might have been welcome, even for audience members who had turned up in good time. The figure of Rumour, full of tongues, would be a familiar one to Elizabethan audiences, and was a classical convention, appearing as a character in Ovid's Metamorphoses. In Shakespeare's day, Rumour often appeared in conjunction with the character of Fame, and according to Peter Davidson, There is a record from 1553 of the revels office paying for a coat and cap to be painted for fame with not only tongues but eyes and ears as well. As modern readers of these history plays the intrusion of such a brazenly abstract figure seems subversive. Up until now we have ostensibly been watching the events of history play out with a cool eye. Now this supernatural figure appears to brag of how easily events can be distorted. Plot-wise this induction directly precedes the proper first scene of the play in which Northumberland hears the cruelly incorrect report of the Battle of Shrewsbury, only for another messenger bearing the sad reality to arrive just afterwards. Rumour has outgalloped the truth, and here establishes a key theme of this second part, that smooth comforts false are worse than true wrongs. This is certainly the case for Falstaff, whose comforting belief in Prince Hal's friendship will be his undoing. C. W. R. D. Mosley has written, Rumour is the physical manifestation of that public opinion which plays so important a role as ground for action and inference in both parts. The issues he presents of deceit and the gap between words, signification and reality, smooth comfort, reach back into the dark abyss of time, back even to the fickleness of opinion glimpsed in Richard II. Richard was his own worst enemy, and did indeed melt like a mockery king of snow before the son of Bolingbroke. Had he been a more steadfast king, might he have inspired more confidence and stability in his subjects? Richard made a perfect victim for rumour. Other characters have more self belief. In an intriguing turn of phrase, the Duke of Westmoreland reassures Henry IV in this play that the numbers of Northumberland supporters have been greatly exaggerated. Rumour doth double, like the voice and echo, the numbers of the feared. What rumour also doth is remind us of the virtue of listening. While Falstaff might seem a braggart and a drunk, he has shown us he has a very good ear. He can mimic the king and riffs effortlessly on the words of others. When the Lord Chief Justice tells him, Your means are very slender, and your waist is great, Falstaff replies, I would it were otherwise, I would my means were greater, and my waist slenderer. He has great confidence in his power over others. Even when caught in a lie in part one, he begins his excuses by saying to Hal and Poins, By the Lord, I knew ye as well as he that made ye. At the beginning of this play, he says with bravado that is not without real arrogance, Men of all sorts take a pride to gird at me. The brain of this foolish compounded clay, man, is not able to invent anything that tends to laughter, more than I invent or is invented on me. I am not only witty in myself, but the cause that wit is in other men. A.C. Bradley writes of Falstaff, that he jests at himself when he is alone as much as when others are by. It is the same with his appetites. The direct enjoyment they bring to him is scarcely so great as the enjoyment of laughing at this enjoyment. And for all his addiction to sack, you never see him for an instant with a brain dulled by it. We have seen that the prince also is a keen observer of life. He needs no reminder from rumor to open his ears and he has learnt to speak in many tongues himself. He is equally capable of a regal head-to-head of state with his father, and also of prosy carry-ons in the boar's head. Falstaff and Hal are, for lack of a better word, talented listeners. And though Hal plays tricks on the older man, it is Falstaff who gets the better of the prince at the end of the first play, when he hijacks the glory of killing Hotspur. But in his first scene in part two, Falstaff is feigning deafness in order to avoid chastisement from the chief justice. It is a comical scene in which Falstaff attempts to divert conversation onto any other topic other than his misdeeds, by babbling on about the disease of not listening, the malady of not marking. Noise has been Falstaff's ally. As the Chief Justice admits, his service at the Battle of Shrewsbury hath a little gilded over his thievery in part one. You may thank the unquiet time for your quiet oerposting that action. Falstaff feigning deafness reminds us of the one fact he has been deaf to from the beginning, he has had numerous indications that the prince will abandon him upon taking the throne. Kings, as we have spoken about in relation to Richard II, were thought of as having two bodies, a private and an official self. We have been privy to Harold’s private self in these plays that carry his father's name, but in his own he will become the official king, just as he promised us in his soliloquy in part one. In Shakespeare's day, Henry V remained a patriotic figurehead, revered as a hero in a way quite unlike any of the other Plantagenet kings in these history plays. This may have made it more difficult to keep Falstaff around. As Coleridge said in conversation about the Fat Knight, he had a profound contempt for all those by whom he was usually surrounded, and had a determination in spite of their fancied superiority to make them his tools and dupes. It was in characters of complete moral depravity, but of first-rate wit and talents, that Shakespeare delighted. Lampooning and mimicking Henry the Fourth was perfectly acceptable, but once Hal assumes his official self at Henry V, a character making a tool and a dupe out of him could be politically unwise, both for Falstaff and for Shakespeare. Dr Johnson nevertheless was dismayed at Falstaff's treatment and wrote, I fancy every reader when he ends this play cries out with Desdemona, Oh, most lame and impotent conclusion. Although William Hazlitt wrote, We never could forgive the prince's treatment of Falstaff, Neither can we pretend to be completely shocked by it. We've heard his unequivocal response of I do, I will to the idea of banishing Falstaff in part one. And besides that, Hal has shown himself to have quite an unpleasant side. There is a kind of six-form nastiness about Hal and Poins playing tricks on Falstaff, like students first humouring and then humiliating the local drunk. This duality of Hal has inspired some awkwardness in performance, especially in productions that cut the plays together. Perhaps his first soliloquy in part one is just too temptingly villainous, but there is a tradition of actors playing Hal by jumping around like a puppy as they talk to Falstaff, and then slipping jarringly into pantomime villain the minute they are left to themselves and Hal's thoughts turn to the crown. But Hal is not like Richard III. He is a cynical, patient, politically minded young man, with a young man's arrogance and appetites. But he is not evil or a sociopath. Mere streaks of cruelty will come out in the wash. He is more pragmatic and forward-thinking than his father, and he knows that his future kingship and his friendship with Falstaff are incompatible. And though the abandonment of Falstaff is brutal, it can really only come as a surprise to one person. And
2: I, I don't buy it either. I don't buy that he ever gives up on Falstaff. I think what he does is takes the throne, and one costs the other. Mm-hmm. Because at the end of Henry Fourth, he's killed Hotspur, And the reason that he gave the stated intention was, if I kill him, all his honors get piled on my shoulders and I get to use those as to my credit for the rest of my days. And that will make my reputation. Soon as he's killed him, he says, take your honors to heaven with you. So hang on. What the hell? He doesn't want the honors that he fought. So he he, deliberately put himself in this place to get. By the time he's killed him, it respects him too much to rob him of them, is my interpretation. Part two. The only other benefit he's now got is, I killed a really hard hero. You know, I killed Hotspur. I'm a badass. And then he says, all right, Falstaff, I'll gild you a lie with the fairest terms I have, and I'll say you killed him. So he doesn't even get that benefit. Mm. So... Yes, he's a Machiavell. Yes, he's got stated intentions. But again, expectation versus reality. That's why he went in. But he comes out with something different. Because what he really needed, it seems to me, is to know that he could do it and to know that he was, in the old chivalric tradition of might makes right, mightier and therefore rightier than Hotspur. He is, he deserves the throne. Mm. He's earned it. He's earned the throne through that conflict, in my opinion. And because he knows that internally, he doesn't need the external shows of either Hotspur's honor or killing Hotspur as a show off move. And he gives them both away one to one, one to Falstaff. Mm. And I think that to me is is the proof if there if there is such a thing <laughs> or that i won't say the proof because all interpretations are valid right but the the compelling evidence certainly that you're right is not a sociopath because that takes extraordinary self-reflection it takes extraordinary empathy it means that he must have a love for falstaff otherwise why would you do him a favor to me it, a, a, an american psycho interpretation <laughs> would raise a lot of interesting challenges, I think, to navigate your way through the words without them feeling like they no longer make sense.
1: W.H. Auden writes that when Hal or the Chief Justice or any others indicate that they are not bewitched by Falstaff, reason might tell us that they are in the right, but we ourselves are already bewitched, so that their disenchantment seems out of place, like the presence of teetotalers at a drunken party. In this play, as he is increasingly surrounded by teetotalers, Falstaff regresses in the direction of good times past, away from the court and into old England, spending time with the interminably nostalgic Justice Shallow, with whom Falstaff says he has heard the chimes at midnight. Jonathan Bate writes, The immemorial quality of the rural world animated by Shallow's ramblings summons up an England that is older and more stable than anything possible in the court world of intrigue, innovation and reversal. Falstaff is old, as he finally admits, and like many old men, he has no time for innovation. Once again, his attitude towards time puts him at odds with modernity. As Auden says, Those who fear not certainty but uncertainty want to control time, and look at the moment as something to be conquered and as having no rights of its own. They either make great careers or are destroyed. It is good for them if they understand the moment, but if they do not, they are destroyed by those who understand it better than they. Hal is an example of this type, as was Hotspur. Falstaff is not. He is, in Auden's words, cynical about change and history. As history approaches for Hal, Falstaff has typically attempted to escape it, and deafens himself to any mention of time, like a drunk blaring out talk of going home. When Dol Tearsheet asks, When wilt thou leave fighting a days and foining a nights, and begin to patch up thine old body for heaven? Falstaff responds, Peace, good doll. Do not speak like a death's head. Do not bid me remember mine end. Robert G. Hunter writes that Falstaff copes with the fact of time's linearity by stoutly denying it, by doing his best to live his life within the circular time of appetite. But in this play, he's eventually forced to face reality. As if slowly drying out after a binge, Falstaff finally accepts, I am old. I am old. In another mirror from part one, part two climaxes with the bringing together of the royal and non-royal storylines. But whereas part one ended in Falstaff's success at Shrewsbury, part two ends in his banishment from Hal. Seen from our vantage, this banishment has been a long time coming, and from Hal's it coldly makes political sense. What about from Falstaff's point of view? He might be a man of the world, but his psychological landscape is one of a drinker and a self-deceiver unwelcome reminders of reality have popped up like death's heads, and until now he has batted them away, but once he admits to his condition, the end comes quickly. Robert G. Hunter writes, What kills Sir John is the destruction of his delusive hope, and the consequent knowledge that his future does not exist. From the first scene, his fake deafness has been linked with the real illness of Henry IV. This whoreson apoplexy, Falstaff calls it, a kind of lethargy, a kind of sleeping in the blood, a hoarse untingling. It hath it original from much grief, from study and perturbation of the brain. It is a kind of deafness. Falstaff's fate is sealed once his rebellion against history is quashed. Similarly, once Northumberland's rebellion is quashed, the end comes quickly for Henry as well. As Peter Saccio writes, immediately after receiving the news of Branham Moor, Shakespeare's king suffers a fatal apoplexy. The playwright has excised the last five years of Henry IV's reign. The king did not actually die until March 1413. Dramatically, it makes sense for Shakespeare to get rid of Falstaff at the same time as he gets rid of Henry IV, but it doesn't entirely explain the degeneration of the fat knight. The elegiac tone permeating even the comic sequences are what A.C. Bradley calls Falstaff's seamy side, saying that in part two, we see him as the heartless destroyer of Mrs. Quickley, as a ruffian seriously defying the Chief Justice because his position as an officer on service gives him power to do wrong, as the pike preparing to snap up the poor old dace shallow. All in all, it is hard to banish the idea that Shakespeare was somewhat sick of Falstaff and thought, as the Chief Justice thinks, that the fat knight was a candle, the better part burnt out. Rumours surround the creation of Falstaff, Some critics have seen in him something of the playwright himself, finding in his earthy, witty subversion of courtly characters an accordance with the country playwright coming to London and beating the locals at their own game. Others have poked towards a reflection in the names Falstaff and Shakespeare. Readers of the sonnets, who identify the fair youth as the Earl of Southampton, have been inclined to see a parallel between Falstaff and Hull's relationship and that of Southampton and Shakespeare. The Earl was the dedicatee of two narrative poems of Shakespeare, and in the sonnets the fair youth is addressed as beloved by the older poet. Others still have suggested that Shakespeare was more Hal than Falstaff, and that the prototype for the Fat Knight was more likely one of the older London playwrights like Robert Greene, who was well known for his drunken and debauched lifestyle. Shakespeare did seem to favour regal roles and may even have performed as Henry IV, These theories all suggest in different ways that his abandonment of Falstaff is personal, perhaps the kind of self-loathing common to all artists who begrudge their own early success, or perhaps it was the bitterness prompted by a rift with Southampton, all symbolic of Shakespeare's outgrowing his rival playwrights. Whatever truth there may be in any of this, it remains surprising that Shakespeare, a playwright with a proven track record for good business sense and reading his audience, washed his hands of his hit comedic character.
0: Wits! Know you, what is you say? My King! My jove! I speak to thee, my heart. I know thee not, old man, all to thy prayers. How ill white hairs become a fool and jester. I have long dreamed of such a kind of man. So surfeit swelled, so old, and so profane. But being awaked, I do despise
2: my dream. And there's theories aren't there around this uh, which I find fascinating about the idea that obviously Queen Elizabeth loved Falstaff. the way I've heard it from conversations that I've had is that Henry the Fourth might not necessarily have been meant to be two parts and that Falstaff Falstaff's death from Douglas, the fake death <laughs> was meant to be real and then that was changed as part of the process because it was clear that this Falstaff character was going to be a big deal. Merry Wives confirms that, and and Kemp, who's playing Falstaff, is getting a whole play written just about him by order of the queen. So Shakespeare has got no say in it, right? Shakespeare has been commissioned. You do this play about this character, this guy plays it. So all of a sudden, there's a power change, power dynamic shift between Kemp and Shakespeare. Then you get part two, as you say, more of Falstaff's play, really. Falstaff is starting to eclipse, you know, he's written as a large character, right? But he's now starting to genuinely eclipse the rest of the story. Then he's dead in Henry V offstage, and he's never seen or heard of again. And after that, you start to see the full characters come in. And we have no more of the old school clown characters that Kemp would have played. Yeah. Kemp did his nine days wonder, where he danced off up to Norwich, I think it was, and expected all of London to follow him. So this is how rock star Kemp thinks he is at this point. You know, he thinks I'm Michael Jackson, everyone's everyone's gonna follow Michael Jackson, right? Um, I guess Shakespeare being one of the other Jackson five, I'm not quite sure where I was going with that. But it's fascinating to me that there's this split between them with Falstaff growing and growing and growing and then suddenly disappearing. And then you get As You Like It, where there's the line, I was nine days out of the wonder. Mm. And you've got Shakespeare explicitly referencing that as, as You Like It, as far as I'm concerned, the first fool, Touchstone, very different. Very, very different. Still a, a clown, I guess, but his approach to clowning, massively different, much mm. more educated, much more upper class, much more loyally. Because he's got a new actor with a different set of skills and a different way of doing things. You've got Jaquie's, the malcontent. You start seeing the malcontents coming out so much more strongly. So it feels to me like, you know, we've been colloquially referring to our plays as in seasons, uh, and we're, we're now just starting season three. But it seems to me like there were definitely two seasons of Shakespeare's works, and those were, you know, you can divide it either by Elizabeth and... What's his name? King James James? or you can look at it as Kemp and post Kemp mm.
1: yeah, because they yeah. are all of a type bottom lawns there's a this maybe a dirty word, but there's a kind of more of a panto-ish ring to those clowns, less so in uh, in the fools that follow. I think that's, yeah. it's really interesting to trace that definitely gives you a sort of silhouette biography of <laughs> him falling out with someone.
2: Yeah, the potted history of uh, the ri- the rise and disappearance of Falstaff. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I think that does really chart it. But similarly, I think other things that provide, I guess, supplementary or supporting evidence would be things like, he's just got a Welsh actor. Because there was a, there was a Welsh character in Henry IV Part One. Now there's a Welsh character in uh, Merry Wives of Windsor. There's definitely a Welsh character in Henry V, I believe. And I think probably there's going to be one in Henry the Fourth, Part Two. Uh, is it is Fluellen in Henry the Fourth, Part Two? Uh,
1: no, I think he's you... Henry the
2: Right. Okay. Yeah. So he's got a Welsh actor, and suddenly Welsh people start turning up all over the place. And to me, if th- if it can happen in that direction, where you get an actor with a set of skills and you and you maximise how you can trade off that set of skills, that suddenly when there's this massive change in performance style and writing style of these entertaining characters that it would follow that it's because an actor has a different set of skills.
1: Uh, I mean, I've forgotten the name of the actor, but whoever it was who ended up playing Shallow was a tall, skinny guy who crops up in, who seemed, again, has another one of those patterns where, oh, he's got a tall, skinny guy again.
2: Yes. Yeah. And I think in King John, I think might have been when that guy joined the company. because there's Robert Falconbridge and uh, the Bastard just rips him on being skinny for way too long like what it's like Shakespeare is so excited to do all these jokes he didn't like edit it was just like no we're going to do them all see which one people find funniest i've been sitting um, on these skinny jokes for years <laughs> exactly i've been waiting for this guy and then yeah and then you get shallow and and i'm sure you know a, a number of other parts where that's going to become the case yeah i, th- I think maybe even andrew Aguecheek. The tallest man in Illyria yeah. could have been that guy as well. Yeah. Well,
0: as well he's tall as tall as, as, tall as and, any no. man in Illyria. Yeah, yeah.
2: But this is a cool story. Sarah, our wonderful <laughs> producer, how tall are you? Uh,
0: technically, five one point eight, I think.
2: <laughs> Has played Andrew Aguecheek in a touring production.
0: <laughs> yes, I, t- I took over from someone who is significantly taller than me, and it was a multi-rolling. Uh, production so yeah so I got to do Olivia uh, and Sea Captain which was fine uh, well I mean Sea Captain so but you know I wore a big jumper uh, <laughs> and uh, yeah, and then Andrew Agui-Cheek so never would have got the chance to play that role that was great fun <laughs>
1: John Sinclo was the name of Shakespeare's tall, skinny actor, who acted alongside William Kemp. Both of them took parts that are in the folio version of this play, listed under Irregular Humorists. Joining them is Mistress Quickly, the tavern hostess, and Doll Tearsheet, Bardolph, the thief in purpled with drink, who has the distinction of appearing in more plays than any other male character in Shakespeare. Also worth noting, in this play there is another character called Lord Bardolph, who appears to have been renamed perhaps due to another Old Castle-type incident in which Shakespeare may have risked offending descendants of one of his characters. Either way, it adds yet another double to this house of mirrors of a play. Then there is Ancient Pistol, whose chief characteristics are being easily triggered and misquoting old plays. One line that he fluffs is a famous one from Marlowe's Tamburlaine. Holla, ye pampered jades of Asia! What, can ye draw but twenty miles a day? Which Pistol fires off as... Hollow, pampered jades of Asia, which cannot go but thirty mile a day. The rowdy scenes at the tavern were surely a central delight in Shakespeare's day, and proved enough to shock critics almost a century later. Elizabeth Montague, writing in 1769, says that every scene in which a Dull Tearsheet Sheet appears is indecent and therefore not only indefensible but inexcusable. There are delicacies of decorum in one age unknown to another age. But whatever is immoral is equally blamable in all ages, and every approach to obscenity is an offence for which wit cannot atone, nor the barbarity or the corruption of the time's excuse. But critics have also drawn attention to the fondness displayed in the interactions between Falstaff and both of these women. They know exactly what a reprobate he is, and their familiarity speaks of a much deeper understanding than that between Falstaff and Hal. More recent scholarship has celebrated the depiction of doll and mistress quickly for shedding light on a rarely glimpsed area of Elizabethan culture. As James C. Bulman writes, Managing a tavern was one of the few avenues for women of low degree to achieve economic independence and social recognition. I mentioned in our Richard II episode the Elizabethan interest in plants and plant properties. Shakespeare demonstrated throughout his plays an extraordinary knowledge of plants and their supposed characteristics. Here, as we have heard, Falstaff is called a dead elm, conjuring the image of an old tree rotted from the centre. Elms are known for supporting vines, just as Falstaff absorbs products of the vine. There is also bawdy fun made of the mandrake, which supposedly had sexually stimulating properties. There are tantalising scraps of Shakespeare's own world in the text. Around the time of writing Henry IV Part II, Shakespeare was in the process of building a large house in Stratford, and scholars have noticed the play has a considerable quantity of house-building terms. There is a three-man beetle referred to at one point, which was a sledgehammer so large it required three builders to use it. And when the king collapses, Warwick says he cannot long hold out these pangs. The incessant care and labour of his mind hath wrought the muir that should confine it in, so thin that life looks through and will break out. Wrought the Muir, meaning to build a wall. Furthermore, the name Bardolph, along with Fluellen, a character we will meet in the next history play, Henry V, appear on a list of Stratford Catholic recusants, along with the playwright's father, John Shakespeare. And there are, as there are in part one, phrases that have been traced back to Shakespeare's home county of Warwickshire, such as Old Utis, meaning a high old time.
2: There um, was something else that you mentioned that I wanted to pick up on, which was about the happy chaos versus the... Yeah. More stagnate order, <laughs> and I think that's that's always the case with times of chaos, and I think it's something that we, it would behoove us to keep in mind because we are in a time of chaos. But what chaos gives you, what anarchy gives you, is opportunity for change, opportunity for growth, opportunity for a change in trajectory. And for me, the worst thing that could come out of the whole COVID-19 pandemic is that things quote unquote go back to normal. And that applies from the smallest level of society in a niche, if you want to call it that, like theater and how theater works, (laughs) uh, right up to the way the whole of society works. For me, we've had an opportunity, we've had a disruption, and that disruption creates an opportunity for us to think about how we want to do things differently and really exciting examples of that have started to happen and I don't say exciting in any kind of positive way because of course the things that motivate the uprisings if you like that we're seeing at the minute are awful but I am nevertheless heartened and encouraged and excited by the Black Lives Matter movement right now because they have said enough is enough and they continue to say enough is enough and it's not going away and it's not dying down and it feels like there's an opportunity for meaningful change because of that and i don't know this and it'll be interesting when we do henry the fourth part two to explore whether there's any of these kind of themes but we're doing merry wives of windsor right now And Merry Wives of Windsor is as close to a knockabout comedy, carry-on farce, silly, pointless play as you can get. Apparently, it was written in 10 days um, at the behest of Queen Elizabeth, who was like, oh, let me see Falstaff in a love story. And you go, "Okay, cool. And yet at the same time, it is the only play that was based in Shakespeare's own time that he wrote in a place that he would have been familiar with. That time, as we've already discussed, had plague, economic crisis uh, and, and social upheaval criminality was massively on the rise because people were forced by economic conditions you know they couldn't afford anything so they had to turn to stealing because there weren't social programs Uh, and it in fact created one of the first social programs as i understand where people would donate money rather than being robbed (laughs) they would donate a portion of their money to uh, provide bread for the poor and sure enough that lowered crime rates (laughs) and so the social commentary that is hidden in this knockabout farce is what happens when middle-class and poor people treat each other as commodities to be exploited. And that to me feels interesting. And if our chronology is right and we've gone from the happy chaos, as you say, of uh, Henry IV part one into the, happy chaos and criminality of uh, Merry Wives of Windsor and people treating each other as a commodity, which came out in King John as well. King John is a major theme of commodity in King John. It's going to be fascinating to look at part two, which from my memory leans even more into the common person's lived experience of Uh, of the world as opposed to necessarily what's going in going on in the court I'm fascinated to see where that exploration goes and what what opportunities Shakespeare finds in that to explore Mm. because I it was the last thing I I was expecting to find when I was doing dramaturgy for Merry Wives would be social commentary on people treating each other only by their economic worth or opportunity and yet it's there. And and when you know it's there, it's there loud and clear. Mm. And so I'm super, super excited about what, what could be coming around the corner with part two. With the crowning of Henry V, we
1: leave the happy chaos and return to a more austere order. This can turn an audience against how, not only does he banish Falstaff, telling him how ill white hairs become a fool and juster, but as Jonathan Bate reminds us, the first public act of King Henry V's reign is the arrest and beating of Dol Sheet and Mistress Quickly. Hal interests us in his duplicity, his sense of history and his confidence in it, but as a king, he does a better job than Richard II of subduing his human nature to his official self. George Bernard Shaw wrote that his popularity is like that of a prize fighter. Nobody feels for him as for Romeo or Hamlet. Hotspur too, he is stimulating, as Ginger Cordial is stimulating, is hardly better than his horse. Political ruthlessness is seen to reap rewards in these history plays. We haven't dwelled much upon the great events of part two, as they are pretty thin on the ground and they are mainly left to Hal's brother, who is, as Stanley Wells writes, the most decisive and successful leader in this play, but also its least attractive character. Prince John achieves victory over the rebel forces by a coldly calculated trick, deceiving their leaders into dismissing their armies in the belief that a peace has been concluded, and then arresting them on a charge of high treason. It is easy to warm to Falstaff's complaint. This same young, sober-blooded boy doth not love me. Not a man cannot make him laugh. But that's no marvel, he drinks no wine. This comes in one of Falstaff's last hurrahs as he delivers an ode to Sack, his tipple of choice, which was a kind of fortified wine.
0: They're generally fools and cowards, which some of us would be too. But for inflammation, a good sherry sack has a twofold operation. It ascends me into the brain. Drives me there all the foolish and dull and crudy vapours which environ it, makes it apprehensive, quick, fugitive, full of nimble, fiery, and delectable shapes which delivered her uh, to the uh, voice, uh, the tongue, which is the birth, becomes
1: excellent wit. Falstaff takes partial credit in the success of Hal when he says, Prince Harry is valiant, for the cold blood he did naturally inherit of his father, he hath, like lean, sterile and bare land, manured, husbanded and tilled with excellent endeavour of drinking good, and good store of fertile sheris, that he has become very hot and valiant. As so often in this play, something said in jest has a rather melancholy undertone. Prince Harry may be hot and valiant, but he hasn't lost any coldness of blood, and is capable of doing things that Falstaff, having so far warmed his own blood on sack, hasn't considered. W.H. Auden writes that the most dishonest characters are those who are unaware that they are acting, or have come to believe their own act. Honesty with oneself requires that you know you are an actor, and not take yourself too seriously. You can be dishonest with others and still be honest with yourself. Hotspur can be honest with others, but is dishonest with himself. Falstaff counterfeits dishonesty, and Henry V is dishonest both ways. His formal will and a powerful ego are the only things he has left. In terms of, of a directing and an acting perspective again, the, the relationship between Hal and Falstaff seems crucial, especially, it, like yourselves, you're going for both parts, which is must be kind of rare to do both now, uh, fully, not do some kind of Henry ad mashing together. Some people talk about there being there is a sort of parent child relationship, and they variously swap roles a bit. They they neither of them let on to the other one how exactly how clever they are. Falstaff's a bit smarter than he lets on. Henry knows a lot more than he lets on. They both have a bit of a father son thing going on. What do you think are some of the uh, important things for you to to just get right about that relationship?
2: It's a really great question. I want to touch on something related first and then hone in. So hold me to account on this. But what I found really interesting about what you just said was about deception and the fact that Shakespeare actually takes an agnostic view of lying. It is not a moral or an immoral thing. It's just something people do. And both characters deceive actively Mm. and it's a large part of their character and I guess one of the questions in that dynamic is how much has Hal learned that from Falstaff, or how much has Falstaff potentially learned that from Harry? Because even the fact that we call him Hal and not Henry shows the extraordinary success of the lie of him being an everyman or being for everyman, at the very least. It's an image that that has been crafted and created by him consciously, and yet we still are happy to go along with it. <laughs> and presumably, Hal is the first member of the royal family that Falstaff has interacted with. And if he's capable of these things, and this is how the court works, how do you then engineer your behavior to ensure that you stay a part of that inner circle for as long as possible? You know, and I don't have any answers to this. this is just provocations, right? It's just interesting things to think about, but I think there is a father son relationship there. I think that's it's easy to read between the lines of the coldness of Henry the Fourth mm. and the warmth, the radiant warmth, the excessive warmth of Falstaff. But what I find fascinating is. The examination, and for me, this is what lies in the heart of each actor that takes that role on is how real is the love and how or how much of the how much of the performed love is narcissistic supply. Does Falstaff like having Hal around because it makes him seem exceptional? And we see this from Hill in the often cut carriers scene. Uh, where he says, "I don't hang around with any ordinary jackanape types. There are princes and royalty in my company. Thank you very much." And he uses Hal to make himself feel better, right? And it's reasonable to assume that Falstaff could be doing the same thing. And then when Mistress Quickly says, "Oh, you know, Falstaff said that you owe him a thousand pounds," Hal he goes, "A thousand pounds? You owe me a million. Your love is worth a million pounds, and you owe me your love." Right. And that is an easy way to get out of an embarrassing situation. (laughs) And it's, again, it's why the plays are the plays, right? It's why we're still talking about them now is why this podcast is happening is because you can do them a million different ways. But I think you have to make a decision and you have to follow through on that decision and try and convey that decision to the audience that whether there's genuine affection there or whether it is manipulative in our production we went for maybe a 75-25 split (laughs) um, in that there was genuine affection between them. And at the same time, they were genuinely using one another. Yeah. And for me, one of the things that I've learned through this process, and I guess the hardest lesson in this regard was Merchant of Venice, is that the complexities... (laughs) The ambiguities, I've always believed, and this I believe comes from the kind of John Barton, Peter Hall school of thinking, that ambiguity is a game to be played with the audience that makes them lean forward in their seat instead of sitting back. It's why I always say there's no sarcasm in Shakespeare, because if you go, no, you're telling the audience what to think Mm. and you're telling the audience what the answer is. With a complex, fascinating relationship like that between Hal and Hotspur, I want that sorry, Hal and Falstaff, I want there to be moments where you feel the love, and I want there to be moments where you feel the craven manipulation. Because we're all capable of manipulating the people we love. Abusive relationships happen all over the world throughout recorded human history. The idea that people that are manipulative are not capable of love is that romantic, sociopathic villain that it's easy to chuck under the bus and just go, you're a quote unquote bad guy.
1: Mm.
2: What's so fascinating about Shakespeare's writing from the point of, I think, King John onwards, certainly, maybe even earlier, is that there are... Or certainly in this period, then, let's say, because of, yeah, there are no villains, there are no out and out (laughs) bad guys. And there's relatively few plays where that occurs. You've got maybe the bastard in King Lear, maybe, probably the closest would be Don John in Much Ado is just like, by strict convention, I am a bad guy. (laughs) You know, and he just kind of, he goes there and he says, I'm the antagonist, deal with it. But in these, you don't have that. And so for me, the complexity of the relationship between Hal and Falstaff is the joy of that relationship, is the richness of why it's a compelling thing that people turn up to theaters to watch, (laughs) is how are you gonna find your way through that? and to what extent, I guess, um, it is one or the other or both. And there's always this idea in semiotics, which is something that we have encountered through our work in innovation, that there are always two points of tension. And you have to decide on, on that spectrum, are you more in one camp or are you more in the other? Because if you're dead in the middle, That's the death trap because no one knows what you are. No one knows what you're going for. Hmm. So you have to say, I'm more this or I'm more that. But you don't have to say, I'm all this or all that. Yeah. And so that, was that. I guess, was the subconscious thing that was, was guiding our journey through that relationship.
1: When Hotspur in part one called Henry IV this forgetful man, he could well have been speaking of any of Shakespeare's kings. The whole saga is full of forgetful men, forgetting or rewriting their pasts in order to secure their future. Interestingly, this play, so full of resemblances to its prequel, contains a moment in which Shakespeare actually quotes from one of his older plays. It comes as Henry IV remembers... Richard, with his eye brimful of tears, then checked and rated by Northumberland, did speak these words, now proved a prophecy. Northumberland, thou ladder by the which my cousin Bolingbroke ascends my throne. But as Adrian Poole points out, this is not exactly what Richard said, at least not in Shakespeare's play. What Richard said was this. Northumberland, thou ladder wherewithal the mounting Bolingbroke ascends my throne. His successor has made a small amendation. It purges the record of that ominous epithet mounting and replaces it by the familiar cousin, suppressing the hint of a rampant sexuality that would seize the throne by force rather than merely ascend it. It only seems fitting in this particular play of Shakespeare's that even when he quotes his own work, it doesn't come out quite right. The line comes shortly after the play's most famous speech in which Henry longs to steep his senses in forgetfulness, though in his case, with sleep, not sack.
0: How many thousands of my poorest subjects are at this hour asleep! Oh, sleep, O oh, gentle sleep, nature's nurse! How have I frighted thee that thou no more wilt weigh mine eyelids down, and steep my senses in forgetfulness! Why, rather sleep, lies thou in smoky cribs, upon uneasy pallets stretching thee and hushed with buzzing nightflies to thy slumber, and in the perfumed chambers of the great, under the canopies of costly state and lulled with sounds of sweetest melody. O oh, thou dull god, why liest thou with the vile in loathsome beds and leavest the kingly couch a watchcase or a common laramel? Thou, upon the high and giddy mast, seal up the shipboy's eyes, and rock his brain in cradle of the rude, imperious surge, and in the visitation of the winds which take the ruffian billows by the top, curling their monstrous heads and hanging them with deafening clamour in the slippery shrouds, that with a hurly, death itself awaits. But thou, O partial sleep! Give thy repose to the wits, he boy, in an hour so rude. In the calmest and most stillest night, with all appliances and means to boot, deny it to a king. Then, happy low, lie down. Uneasy lies the head that wears a crown.
1: He says he wants to steep my senses in forgetfulness, like he's actually embracing it. And he seems to have slightly retconned, to use that word again, um, how uh, what happened with him and Richard II. Uh, I think he says something like, "Oh, the troublesome way I met this crown, as opposed to took it." Um, yeah. And if you if you watch all of the history plays, it, it almost seems like every single one forgets the last. Obviously, yeah. they, weren't le- they weren't written in that order, but um, it does seem to
2: be a recurring thing. Yeah, no, I absolutely get what you're saying. And I guess it can be a recurring thing no matter what order they're written in, because it happens every time, right? Yeah. And that's the no one's paying attention. Um, but I love the idea of him saying met to the Crane because Bolingbroke was genius in that he never asks for it in mm-hmm. Richard II. He never asks for it. It's given, and, and it happens, but he's never once said, I want it, and he's never once said... He says, I'll take it, I think, but he never But he never actually says, I'm going to take it or I want it. And the fact that he says, I met the crown, to me validates in a way, a lot of the things that uh, Vernon and Worcester talk about through the play, where they say, we we helped you get where you are. We put you on that throne. Mm. And almost in a way, his, politi- his clever politics of trying to seem humble by never asking for it, also therefore invalidates his claim to it because he'd never had the might- makes right discussion. He never fought in a field and beat the other guy. And that's why I deserve to have it. Didn't happen. And that's a massive undercutting if you're using old school chivalry to determine who should be king. He doesn't have a claim. Hmm. And so I think that the, the way in which he says, I met the crown, to me reflects a whole sense of unease in him about his own deserving it. And I've all, have always found that a fascinating sore thumb about Hal because he is the son of an illegitimate king in a way.
1: Mm.
2: And yet Shakespeare sets him up from the beginning as blood royal. There's all this discussion in the text about, are you a degenerate? Are you a bastard? And all that is trying to say, are you of the blood royal or not? And the way he gets to prove that he is, despite the fact that his dad arguably isn't, is through feats of arms and old school chivalry. Yeah. (laughs) And so that is a retcon in its own way, right? It's if, if even though I'm not, if I do, if I use the old ways of behavior to prove that I could be, that's enough. Um, But yeah, the idea that people don't learn from history and don't know their own history, I think is really prevalent in part one, because Vernon, Henry IV and Hotspur all three of them give a potted history of what happened in Richard II. They all give a plot summary. To my knowledge, I believe they all happen in different acts, which, again, is that idea of people milling in and out. What's going on? Where are we picking up from? Oh, cool. I missed that play.
1: Yeah, exactly. Yeah. What was that one about? What?
2: Um, but it's the idea of they all have different perspectives on it and the same se- factual series of events leads three entirely different people down three entirely different paths and that to me is a fascinating and slightly scary thing about history as well is that one it's written by the winners and we're seeing that now with statues being taken down right statues of writing history and saying this person is worthy of glorification where the actual factual history tells us that's not the case you've got these three characters arguing over claiming history for themselves and claiming history justifies their specific actions. And I guess that to me is the cautionary tale that Shakespeare is telling about history, if anything, is that it like biblical precedent, which he uses a hell of a lot, you know, thus do I clothe my villainy in old and stolen forth from holy writ or however it goes. I, you can justify anything using scripture. You can justify anything using history. And so know it, really know it, but also beware of anyone that claims it because you get three equally valid claims in Henry the Fourth, part one, all using the same series of events. And for me as an audience member, I'm looking at that and going, oh shit. Okay, so multiple valid perspectives are possible. <laughs> And there is an interpretation inherent in any. As soon as the people that are involved die, right? Mm. It's it's then all interpretation from then on. And so, yeah, I think I think knowing history being val- valuable is point one, and point two, be careful with how you wield it. I suppose point two.
1: At the end of Henry the Fourth, the king has finally got the sleep he wished for, and as he falls asleep, Hall awakes into his official self, telling his former friend Falstaff that although he doesn't know him, I have long dreamt of such a kind of man, so surfeit swelled, so old and so profane, but being awaked, I do despise my dream. Part 2 ends with an epilogue, promising the continued adventures of Falstaff in France. Some have taken this to mean the Fat Knight did indeed feature in an early version of this play sequel, but was later removed. We will hear more from Falstaff in The Merry Wives of Windsor, but not when we return to Hal, and the ongoing fortunes of the Hollow Crown, in the next history play, Henry V. But that's all we have time for today. Huge thank you once again to Rob and Sarah. Make sure you check out The Show Must Go Online in the link below in the episode description box. And if you've enjoyed today's episode and would like to support the podcast, you can follow us on social media, leave us a rating on your chosen podcast platform, and perhaps even visit our Patreon page at patreon.com ereadthis That's all for now. Until next time, happy reading. <laughs>